Psalm 1, starting with verse 1. This is God's word. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Pray with me. Father, I ask, Lord, for your grace. I ask, Father, that your word here will stand true for us, that, God, we will just really deeply meditate upon what you have to say to us. That, Lord, our faith will be grounded in this truth. And that, God, we will come to see just how beautiful and how wonderful you are. Speak through your word as we study why it's so important to read your word and meditate upon it. So lift this, up, lift this time up in your name. Amen. What we see here in Psalm 1 is a direct contrast between the way of the wicked and the way of the righteous. We see this theme play out a lot through the Hebrew wisdom literature. Right? The, the Hebrew wisdom literature, the, the Psalms, the Proverbs, Job, Ecclesiastes. Like, and if you read through them, if you study through them, you'll see that all of them divide the world really into two sets of people. You have the righteous, and then you have the wicked. And quickly we'll find, as you, if you read through these wisdom literature, that the righteous are the ones who follow God, but the wicked are the enemies of God. And here Psalm 1 lays out those paths very clearly for us. And the first thing we'll see here is the way of the righteous. The way of the righteous. Psalm 1 begins with this Short phrase, blessed is the man. Here we have the word blessed, and and we talked about this on Sunday a bit. Blessed is this deep-rooted joy that, that we all long for. This isn't just some kind of like happy-go-lucky kind of joy. This is a joy that is deeply seated into our hearts. One that's full and complete. In the Hebrew, the word blessed is, is actually in the plural form. And it's not meaning that there's many blessings. What it's saying is that this blessedness is complete, perfect. It's deep. It's vast. Another way to talk about this blessedness is to talk about how we are to have this joy carry on through us, growing in us every single day despite what we go through whether we're going through trials whether we're going through times and valleys or on top of mountains whether we're going through times of blessings we always have this joy amongst us and this is joy that we can experience every single day on Sunday Hanley used the word he translated the word blessed as flourishing Representing how this joy is one that can grow stronger and stronger day by day. And so this phrase here, 
blessed is should catch our attention. We should always keen in upon that phrase because isn't this what we're all looking for? Isn't this what we are seeking after in this world? To find the state of blessedness and enter it? Just think for a moment what you seek after. Think about why you do the things you do. What do you wish to obtain? What, are, what kind of purpose are you looking for? What's your satisfaction? Why do you pursue the career you pursue? Why are you in the current grad school you're in? What are you looking for when you're looking for your perfect soulmate? Why do you work? Is it so you can have an early retirement? Do you just want to experience and travel the world? What is it that you're looking for? Whatever it is, whatever it is you desire is connected to your joy. And, and Christianity argues that our joy, our greatest joy, can only be found in God alone. Christianity isn't just a religion that saves us from hell. Christianity teaches us that the world Every single person that dwells in this world is created for their ultimate joy and blessedness to be in God. And therefore, when we see here in the scriptures, we see here, Psalm 1 begins with this statement, Blessed is the man. Now take a moment, turn with me quickly to Psalm 2. Psalm 2, in verse 12, the very last line of Psalm 2 says this, Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Here we see, then, Psalm 1, Psalm 2, two phrases of what it means to be blessed. These two lines act as brackets around these two songs. Psalm 1 and 2 are like the gatekeepers to the Psalter. They welcome you in to see what the Psalms have to teach. And here, these lines provide a central foundational theme of all of the Psalms. That there is this joy, this blessedness that flows through this whole collection. I love the Psalms. The Psalms just speaks of so much variety of human emotion. And so when we're talking about blessedness here, and we talk about blessedness in the Psalms, We see that in the Psalms, we don't just get this really happy guy going along through life. In the Psalms, we contain poetry about suffering, about hardship, about sin, about wretchedness, about evil, about good, about struggles, about doubts. There's a full arrangement of emotions in the Psalms. And it's it's amazing to just dwell in the Psalms. And so, guys, when we're talking about blessedness here, when we talk about it, whether we're talking about it on Sunday, whether we're talking about here tonight, whether we're talking about amongst your small groups and amongst your friends, we're not just talking about this pulling on this mental happy attitude. It's not just this fortitude that we have in our minds. It's about when we face the harshman trials, we will feel definitely the emotions of being burdened, being stressed, being anxious, sad, and angry. But then there's this joy underneath it all. This joy that that helps us endure. That helps us see not just where we are in the present moment, but see the hope that we have at the end. There is this great joy that we can get in 
God. To know that, yes, times may get really hard for us, but yet still keep going because we know we have a greater reward. So here Psalm 1 introduces us into this meaning of what it means to be blessed. And so now let's take a look and see then, who is this blessed man? What does he do? Now the psalmist opens up here in verse 1. And he opens up here and he, he actually doesn't say what does the psalmist do. He says what the psalmist does not do. Right? Psalm 1.1 Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So the psalmist here lists three actions in succession. Right? Three actions here. And, and, and there's this progression that we see. Right? This person does not walk with sinners. He does not stand with them, nor does he sit with them. These actions are, they're like intensifying in action in terms of where this person stands. This man here is a righteous man. He's a blessed man. He does not walk and follow the wickedness of the world like a mindless sheep. He does not stand with them as if he's protesting in opposition with God, nor does he sit down, pitch a tent, and dwell amongst the wicked. He does not identify himself with them. In other words, the blessed righteous man here lives a life that looks completely different and opposite from the wicked sinners and scoffers. Now, take a moment when we look upon this and you know, I, I don't think anyone here in this room necessarily stand or s- stand with these kind of sinners or sit in the ski seat in the scoffers. We, you know, I don't see anyone here going on like you know protesting, um, publicly supporting abortion or they're supporting for LGBTQ rights and things like that. I, I don't. Instead, I see most people here standing with biblical truth, right? But I do want to take a look and try to understand what it means. For the first phrase, when it says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Here's a description of mindless sheep. People who just simply go with, with the rest of the crowd. People who just say, you know what? This sounds right. It feels right. Therefore, it must be right. Take for instance, when you guys are pursuing a career, how many of you guys have asked yourself the question, think that this question is the question you must answer when it comes to your career. What do I love to do? I have to pursue what I love, right? It's a very millennial way of thinking. And I know I thought a lot that way when I was working. If you don't enjoy your job, the world tells you you should probably look for a new one. And as much as like that constantly that saying is there for us like we hear that all the time recent studies secular studies has shown that this is this kind of thing has actually ruined a lot of people because these people actually end up lacking the discipline needed to actually have a stable job they get bored easily and so they pursue a new one. But once they pursue a new one, the glamour and the excitement of the new job fades away. And they're back looking for new job listings. Now, 
I'm not advocating that you should stick with your horrible job and just suck it up. Not saying that. I, I just want us to be honest with ourselves when we hear things like this around the world. Right? I want us to, to just think for a moment and just be honest that we do believe sometimes when the world tells us we should find a career that we love. And that is not necessarily wrong. No, that, I'm not saying that this is necessarily wrong. But it definitely isn't something that is taught in Scripture when it comes to how we're supposed to make decisions with our lives. In other words, this is a statement that we can, you know, take as and, and try to answer and wrestle with our hearts of what we want to do with our lives. But this is not a statement by which we should live by. Therefore, we have to be wary. We have to be careful. We have to take a look upon what this world is trying to teach us and not get caught up in all of it so easily. We have to ask ourselves, how does God want us to make our decisions? And that's revealed to us in the scriptures. And so let's take a, let's take a closer look at this. See, so the blessed man here does not follow the world so easily. Instead, he walks a different tune in a different direction. And in, in verse 2, it starts with the word but, showing us a direct contrast between this blessed man and the wicked people. And in verse 2, the psalmist shows us the way of the righteous. It says, His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Day and night. This righteous man does not engage himself with the words of the wicked. Instead, he turns to the law of the Lord. And it says here, he meditates upon it day and night. Day and night. Take a moment here and look at this word meditate. It's, a, it's, it's actually a pretty difficult word to translate from Hebrew. Because in the Hebrew, the, the literal meaning of it is to utter, is to moan. Meaning there's this deep inward emotional response that's happening here to God's word. You can describe this emotion as one who groans. One who groans at the desire and need to hold on, to obey God's law, to have it in their hands. And so the righteous man here, he meditates. He meditates. He sits under it. He dwells in it. His emotions are attached to it. He meditates on the law day and night. Now, not, now it doesn't mean he has a book in front of his face, walking around, bumping into everything. It, it, it just simply means he's most likely muttering it to himself, memorizing the words, taking in every word, every phrase, and just really internalizing Everything God has revealed to us here in His Word. And this is how we ought to treat God's Word as well. We ought to treasure God's Word. That what we have in our hands is the greatest treasure that we can have in this world. Do you long for God's Word? Do you value it above all else? Do you read it and meditate upon it like this psalmist? Do you... Do you let it take a hold of your life? More than that, do you thrive in the Word of God? See, this righteous man here, 
Well, he meditates on it. He meditates on it so he can bear fruit. Look at verse 3. This man is like a tree planted by streams of water. So this tree here, we see here this tree is rooted by a stream of water. So this tree then is a healthy, thriving tree. This tree here is growing. It says that this tree bears fruits. It does not wither. It does not lack the resources to stay alive. Instead, this tree, this man, prospers in all that he does. Wouldn't you love that feeling to prosper in all that you do? This is what meditating upon God's word looks like. This is what it does for a believer. The word of God is powerful. And it can change your life for the better. If you guys are wondering why, how you grow in your life and your spiritual walks, it all starts here with the Word of God. And there's so many scripture passages talking about how important it is for us to dwell in the Word of God. Psalm 19, verse 7 to 9. Psalm 19 verses 7 and 9 tells us how the law of the Lord, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making the wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. This is our treasure. We get to have this in our hands. This perfect, unblemished treasure, the law of the Lord. In Isaiah 40 verse 8, it tells us that the grass may wither, the flowers may fade, but the word of God stands forever. It means that the word of God will never change. The word of God stands true for thousands and thousands of years will stand true for your entire lifetime. Just think for a moment what we have in our hands. This is not just something that was created back in like the 1960s. This was created for thousands of years. And the truths that we've been teaching, the truths that we're building our lives upon have been the same truths being taught in all of those years. These truths have not changed. These truths are the same. Nothing in this world stands for that long. Nothing in this world can proclaim such longevity. Only the word of God can. Why don't we trust in it more? Jesus even says, John 17 verse 17 says, Jesus says that we are to be sanctified by the truth. And then he follows that up saying, God's word is truth. I mean, the way we're to grow in our holiness, the way we're to be sanctified is from, through the word of God. Second Timothy verse three, chapter three, verse 16 tells us how the word of God, the scriptures, all of it is breathed out by God and is sufficient for everything, capable to equip all of us to be complete 
and perfect workers of God. More than all this, 1 Peter chapter 1 tells us that the Word of God is the gospel. And the gospel is the what is what saves us. And the And the Word of God reveals to us the way to salvation. It shows us who Christ is and how He died on the cross for our sins and rose again so that we may be saved. If our faith and our salvation begins with what the Word of God teaches us, why not continue to dwell upon the Word of God for the rest of our walks with God? This year, It's the picture of blessedness. That this man in Psalm 1, he's not blessed because he's rich or wealthy. He's not blessed because he has his perfect family. He has his big house. He's not blessed because of all that. He's blessed because he has a healthy spiritual life that is centered and rooted in the word of God. He stands firm in all that. He walks according to to the word of God. So that is then the way of the righteous. Starting from verse 4, we see the way of the wicked. The psalmist here takes a look at the way of the wicked and sees how it simply just goes in the opposite direction. Right? And, and he says here, verse 4, the wicked are not so. This is a simple statement, very simple statement. And I, I love statements like this because it just there's just no compromise. There's, there's no trying to justify the wicked, no excuses. Just simply, the wicked are not so. The wicked are not the righteous. Instead, the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. And again, here we get this imagery from the psalmist. He's a poet. He's making note of this contrast. This righteous man is rooted, but this wicked man, this wicked man, it's like dust and pollen air. He's unrooted, untied, unfettered to any strong foundation. So what we see here is that this wicked man has no restraint. He moves from to and fro, from one place to another, without a single strong moral conviction. And this is dangerous. Without the word of God to guide you, you too may end up like this. Think for instance, the New Testament tells us this. James 1 verse 68 says that the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that's being that's driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose you'll receive anything from the Lord. He's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Ephesians 4.14 says that we, we, may, we are to know the truth so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by, wind, by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Without the word of God to root us, to guide us, we will be lost to the ways of this wicked world, following after one philosophy and after another. The only true way that we are to truly ground ourselves is in the scriptures. 
I want us to take a moment, just think for a moment, just think. Just, just examine the world, examine what everything that the world is trying to teach us. I mean, if you, if you actually just dig deep down into the fundamental worldview behind a lot of the debates and controversy and arguments out there, from things from like abortion rights to gender equality, if you just dig deep down into their arguments, you'll see just simply how ungrounded and feeble they truly are. But more than that, I want us to take a moment and just think that not only are we to know the truth, but we are also to follow the truth, obey it, and walk it. Because if you are to say you hold a certain philosophy or worldview to something, but you don't follow it, that is what it means to be an unfettered person being tossed to and fro, back and forth, confused about who they are. (coughs) No wonder this world is so caught up in trying to figure out their own identity. But this should also challenge us as Christians who do hold the truth in our hands. Because the truth here, the word of God that we have in our hands, has to be more than just what we read and what we know from it. It has to be about the way we live. The way we understand how these truths impact our daily walks. Just think for a moment. Think for a moment how important it is for us to truly be grounded in these truths. What happens when trials hit your life? What happens when, when tragedy strikes? You lose a job. You get laid off. What happens when a close friend passes away from a car accident or a family member gets cancer? What happens when your own physical body starts deteriorating and dying and you can't even run anymore? What happens when those things start happening to you And everything that you built up in your life, everything that you had in your life starts falling away and fading. How do you respond? How do you respond? Do you still give thanks to the Lord for He is good? Do you believe that? And I know it will probably be hard to believe such a thing during that time. To believe that God indeed is on your side when things are falling apart. But we need these truths. We need these truths because we need to see our lives to be greater than what it is at this moment. That there's a certain level of purpose for why we are here, why we exist. Because without these truths, what do you have to hope in when these things happen? What do you have? What does the world have to offer when all of it fades away? And all we're left is is trying to hold on to things that simply vanish away like sand in our hands. What happens? Here, God tells us in His Word, 
that there is a great promise of redemption. That there's a great promise of hope. That's a great promise that you're created more than for this world. You're created for God. You're created in His image to glorify Him. To be like Him. A purpose that is everlasting, eternal, and deep. This Word of God here is more than just a book of commands. It's to show us who God is. It's to show us who we were made to be. Made to be like And in this book shows us then promises of God, the character of God, how we can trust in God, how God indeed is our Redeemer, our Savior, and the one whom we love, the one whom we want to obey and follow. When the truth of God here does not tie you down, man, I... I don't know what you can hold on to. But when you come to see the scriptures and you, and you see that God has ordained all these, God has a purpose for all these, that God indeed can make all things good, there is hope that we can hold on to. There is substance to that. Only the truths of God can make sense of this world around us. Only scripture can ground us in objectivity. Because the scriptures teach us who God is. Who God is. And that is what it's all about. So the scriptures then tells us that we are to be like God. Therefore, the wicked those who do not walk according to the word of God, those who do not meditate upon the word of God, those who do not stand in the word of God, they will be condemned. Verse 5, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. The wicked here cannot even last one second before God. They will indeed be condemned eternally separated from the congregation of righteous ones. And who are the righteous ones? Well, the righteous ones are the ones who believe in the gospel, who believe in the word of God and what it has to teach us. The righteous ones are the ones who have faith, not in their own work, but in God's work. And that faith, what does that faith look like? The faith looks like those who, perse- who persevere through unjust trials and the ugliness of the world by trusting in the promises of God revealed in His Word. Faith looks like those who stand firm in their convictions, in the midst of temptations and social pressure by obeying the commandments of God. Faith looks like those whose words speak truth. Because they have been renewed by the teachings from this book. My friends, if you want to find any stability in your life, any peace, any hope, any joy, you must ground your life in the Word of God. That means taking all your emotions, all your thoughts, everything, every part of it, all your actions, and hold them captive. To what 
the word of God has to say for us. How do you view the word of God? How do you understand the word of God? What do you do when you come before the scriptures and read them? What do you see? Is the word of God here? It does show us who we are, but we have to go past that. Because when we see how guilty we are, we get stuck there. What we have to see is that the word of God teaches us about who God is and how he is mighty to save. How we can trust in him. How we are utterly incapable of saving ourselves, of being righteous before him. That it depends upon the work of Christ being taught to us here. That's what saves us. That's what empowers us. That's what strengthens us to keep going. Let this then be your decision maker. Let this then be how you ought to live your life. For example, let's always take a deep look upon the questions we're asking ourselves. Just, when we're asking ourselves a question, just, just, we should always be wondering, is that question a biblical question? Is that question a good question? For instance, if you get invited to an event, like the IT Christmas party. Get invited to the event. Don't let your first thought be, who else do I know will be there? I mean, even if we don't like to admit that out loud, we know we're trying to see if our close friends are going. We know that that's, that's what our hearts are asking. But instead, we should be asking ourselves, question about if I go to this event, if I can go, how can I better invest into the people that are there, into the kingdom of God? How can I better glorify God? Because that's the question that scripture always wants us to ask. How do I glorify God? How do I further his kingdom? Constantly check your questions that you ask yourselves. Ask and see if they match up to the questions Scripture asks us about our hearts. You see then how the man who walks, then who meditates upon the Word of God is the man who is blessed because the man who actually finds his deep root identity in God for Psalm 1 ends then it ends with the destination of both paths first it says in verse 6 that the Lord knows the way of the righteous the Lord knows the way of the righteous here we see then that the, word, that the Lord knows this man, this man who follows him, this man who meditates upon his word. And the word know here is not just this intellectual knowing this person. This word know is a deep relation, relational knowing, knowledge. It's a deep relationship between God and this man who's blessed. That is the final and ultimate blessing for us to be with God, to be fulfilled by Him 
to find complete and everlasting joy in God alone, to have our image of God restored to his perfect and complete way. In the other end of the road, the way of the wicked, the psalmist says that they will perish. They will die. They'll be cast away from God of life. And their end is their destruction. And so then the big idea that we see here is that persevering joy in God is deeply rooted in meditation on the Word of God. And what I mean by persevering joy in God is what I mean is a deep relationship with Him. Deep, fulfilling, satisfying relationship with Him. So then, if this is how the psalmist saw his life, how much more are we to live by the Word of God now that we're on this side of the cross in the New Testament? Now that we know that Christ died for our sins and created in us a new heart to live in his kingdom. Seeing then how Psalm 1 unpacks the importance of us being the word of God, let's now then turn to the Sermon on the Mount and let's see how that helps us in our understanding of what Jesus has to say. Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verse 3. Jesus begins with the same word, blessed. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What we see here is pretty much the same thing that we see back in Psalm 1. That it requires for us to recognize that we need the word of God. We need his truth to help us grow. Blessed are poor in spirit means that we recognize how defeated we are. How much need we are of God, of Christ and his teachings. This here, blessed are the poor in spirit here is talking about a faith. A dependence upon trusting and obeying God. Then turn me to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. As the Sermon on the Mount talks, then goes through all these laws, all these different things about how a Christian ought to live. Again, this Sermon on the Mount is not about how we're to gain salvation, it's about how Christians who are already saved ought to live. Then we reach the end, Matthew 7, verse 21. Matthew 7, verse 21, the end of Jesus' sermon, he says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. 
Guys, I pray that no one here will ever hear those words. That no one here will ever hear that Jesus says, I never knew you. I don't know you. The end of the path here for this, for these workers of lawlessness is the same end for the wicked in Psalm 1. They will be cast out. They will face condemnation. They will perish. But as Christians, as those who are saved and by the word of God, verse 24, everyone who then hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. Christ and his words are our rock by which we can stand upon. This is not, a sh- this is not something that's floating away in the air. This is a tree rooted in the ground, growing, flourishing, thriving in life. So then I encourage you all to continue to meditate upon the Word of God day and night, recognizing that this is your source of life, your bread, this is your moral compass, your guide, your daily habits. And as you come to meditate the Word of God, remember, as more than just knowing this, but it's coming to know and experience the love of God, to experience your relationship with God grow through your obedience to His Word, through trusting His promises, knowing that only God can satisfy your soul. I don't know we're still doing discussion groups, but I do have questions if you guys are talking afterwards, if we do do groups, these are some questions to think about and meditate upon. Um, and so they're there. Let me go ahead and close us then in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you, God, for your great truth. We thank you, Lord, that we have this living word. That our Lord... These things are written down for us, for us, so that we can know you better, Lord. Oh God, how thankful should we be then to know that you are not some kind of secret, mysterious God, but that, Lord, you have sufficiently revealed yourself in the scriptures. All that we need to know to be saved and to live a blessed life. Thank you, God. Thank you for Christ. Thank you for sacrificing your son upon the cross for our sins. Thank you for raising him up again so we have hope for a future redemption. Thank you, Lord, for teaching us constantly, walking with us. But thank you most of all that we have this relationship with you and that you know us and we know you. And that is better than anything else.
pray all this in your holy and precious name. Amen.